Yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, I, you know, I just realized uh, my sound was off. So it's possible people were talking to me and I didn't hear them. And I apologize. Um, so uh, welcome to the latest session of uh, Beth Lita Online's class on Pure Chaos Vote. Uh, it's traditional to study Pure Chaos Vote uh, in two periods, which are uh, succession, successive to each other. The first period is between Pesach and Shavuot, symbolizing, I think, the period of uh, building ourselves up, focusing on the traits that we want to work on so that we can be the people who can receive the Torah in earnest. But even beyond Shavuot, there's a tradition to study Pirkei Avot because it's the summer, and, you know, people are a little more loose, a little more relaxed in the summer, and there's some rabbis like, ah, oh, that's the time to study ethics. That's the time to crack down. Um, so I wanted to mention that, A, because, you know, I find it, I find it somewhat amusing, but also, um, B, because it's that, let's say, tension between, let's call them the ideal and the real, that has been like a common theme that we've been looking at these past couple weeks, right, where we looked at the word avot as uh, meaning both person, right, literally the ancestors we received this wisdom from, but also principle, right, the major ideas, archetypes that uh, build up what Torah is. But then the question we ask then is what happens when the rubber of the ideal meets the road of the real? All right, what happens when our highfalutin ideas, um, we need to, you know, deploy them, practice them in real life? And that is going to be a kind of organizing principle of what we're going to look at tonight. Tonight we're going to look at what it means to have intention in terms of how we conceive of ourselves, how we consider ourselves as religious subjects, as, you know, to use the language of the mission we're about to see, servants of God. Um, now, before we get into the text, what do you think is an appropriate mindset, to use a contemporary idiom? Um, what's a contemporary mindset? Uh, sorry, what's an appropriate mindset to have? Um, in your being a Jew, in your being an observer of Torah, in your being a servant of God. What do you think is like the orientation, the mental orientation we're supposed to have? Does that question make sense? All right, so from Lauren, I'm hearing, hum I see humility and reverence, and that makes sense, especially in terms of your appreciation of Ralph Cook and others that we've talked about before. Um, so on one hand, to have, to have a regard of oneself, right, uh, contextualize oneself, not to uh, puff yourself up too much. On the other hand, reverence, which is an other-oriented orientation, right? Humility is how you regard yourself, and reverence is how you regard God, right, with to revere God, to, you know, it's usually the word that's used as an alternative for yira, which means fear, terror even, awe. Um, well, we're going to, you know, and we're going to see actually that that's a very prescient citation of that term because we're going to see that that's going to play into our kernel text. Any other ideas? What, you know, how should a Jew be is the question I'm asking. All right, well, dead air is the enemy of anyone who has hosted radio, which I used to do when I was in Jewish summer camp. So, growth-oriented. Oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful idea. Honesty from Lauren. Again, one of kind of a, let's say, a, 
a matter of principle, right? You know, classic ethical question is like, when does one need to be honest? When does one, when should one not be honest, right? That's a different sheer. We can do that some other time. But um, yeah, honesty, you want to be honest. Um, but you know, in some ways, like, can honesty sometimes bog us down, right? If we're going to be realistic about ourselves, you know, does that mean we're going to be a bit pessimistic? We're not going to be so aspirational because we have a realistic conception of what we can achieve? You know, what is, what, what's the object of the honesty? It's an interesting question. Growth oriented, you know, in a way that's like maybe against honesty, not that it's a lie, but rather growth oriented is about what one can uh, deal with, right? What, sorry, what one could aspire to, right? What is the horizon that has yet to be reached, right? That can't be defined yet. It's not real yet. Growth is what else you could be, you know, out of what you are now. Um, Lauren qualifies honesty in terms of uh, being a fair appreciation of others, and Ellen agrees in terms of uh, having an ethical or an equitable treatment of others. Okay, so to be a servant of God, we see it kind of goes in two directions, like we said from the beginning. On one hand, it turns inward, right, in terms of how you regard yourself, but also it turns you towards others in terms of you are not just representing yourself in this world, but you are also a representative of God. And because of that, then, how you interact with others reflects on your commitments uh, as a Jew to the Jewish people and to the project of what it means to be a Jew, Torah, right? observing Torah, that you are representing God and God's wisdom, God's will, uh, God's intent in this world. So, you know, heady stuff. So let's uh, let's 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 get further into it. Let's ground ourselves in a little bit of uh, textual learning. Let's look at the Mishnah we're going to look at. Uh, and if you know me by now, you know how much I love my clever little titles. So this is called Terms of Service. Like you like you have to click accept when you download an app. Uh, commitment and conditions, and we'll see why. So we're going to look at Mishnah Avot, of course. Uh, the third Mishnah. We're going in order. One, two, three. Excellent. So Antigonos. Does someone want to read this? Oh, chatty bunch tonight. Come on. I'll read. There we go. What, Antigonus? Yes. A man of Soho received the oral tradition from Shimon the Righteous. He used to say, do not be like servants who serve the master on condition of receiving a reward but be like servants who serve the master without the condition of receiving reward and let the fear of heaven be upon you. Okay, great. Well read. And if you were just to kind of give me a nice little summary in your own words, what's, what's Antigono saying? How should one be? Well, I mean, so this is what's called a mushal, right? It's an analogy, a parable. So let's piece out what the different elements of it are. So who's the servant? Who's the master? Analogously speaking. That's a great point, Lauren. I'll get to after we kind of translate it first, but that's a great point, Lauren. Yeah. Okay. The servant of the Jewish people, the master is Hashem. Okay, great. Yeah. We don't need a, you know, it's not trying to trick you. That's right. So... God, you know, is the Lord, but think of the word, what the word Lord means, right? The master. God is the Lord, and we're the servant. So, imagine yourself as if you are an employee, right, or a servant of your boss, God. And you go to work, you know, you have the punch card, you clock in, cha-chunk, like Fred Flintstone, 
right? And what is it to be, I mean, you know, think of like today's like toxic productivity culture, you know? Uh, what, you know, like, like those, those weird inspirational pamphlets you get from corporations. You know, love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life, you'd say, as you, wor as you work as a subway artist at Subway, uh, a sandwich artist at Subway, right? So, I mean, how are you supposed to be as an employee, according to this? Lauren said, service is not transactional in the chat. Intrinsically motivated. You know, that's actually, Adrian, that's a fa fabulous um, rephrasing of the, English, of the Hebrew term uh, lishma, which means for its own sake, as we translate it, or for its own name. But I think intrinsic, intrinsically motivated, that's a, that's a, that's a very elegant translation of that. For intrinsic reason, for its own sake. It's not transactional, right, per Lauren's comment, and since you're not doing like X amount of service of God, or let's see, let's stay in the analogy. You're not making X amount of sandwiches so that you bring home a paycheck, right? You are rather making the sandwiches because it is, well, it doesn't say for why exactly. Isn't that interesting? It says, don't be like somebody. Do not be like servants who serve their master on condition of receiving a reward. Don't just do the job for the sake of the paycheck, right? And what's the paycheck analogously here? What's the schar? Some kind of reward. Either you should have a healthy life, you should have a life of, of prosperity, that kind of thing. Okay. So you're thinking of schar olam hazeh? Like it's a reward in this world? Yeah, exactly. Okay, quantity in some ways. Length of days quality of days. Okay. How else could one conceive of the schar? Ah, ba'olam haba, schar ba'olam haba, right? The compensation for the way in which we look around the world, and it sure doesn't seem fair. Ah, this world is but a shadow, whereas in the next world, all scales and all balances will be, uh, will be completed, right? That there's a world to come, either Bimoth Mashiach, right, in the days of the Messiah, or some kind of afterlife in which there is some kind of, you know, balancing the scales. Um, but, you know, and that's like, if you think of like the uh, pop account of religion, right, it's like, oh, these ancient people looked around, saw a bunch of suffering, it's like, well, this can't be right, so there must be some kind of fantasy world out there in which things are good. Or that's like, you know, the anthropology, like, that's what religion is, you know, pat you on the head, isn't that a childlike idea? It's very condescending. But, you know, even within Judaism, as early as 200 CE, you see Antigonus each Soho go, yeah, that's not the point. I mean, listen, yes, we have an eschatology, right? We believe in, you know, the coming redemption and, and justice, that the arc of the universe, you know, does bend towards justice, right? We don't think it is a meaningless universe out there. But on the other hand, it would be a pretty crass account of what it means to live a meaningful, worthy life if you see yourself as God's sandwich artist, right? Just cranking out the subs to bring home that sweet, sweet paycheck. Yeah, Ellen. The last part of the, the and let the fear of heaven be upon you, is it saying mm -hmm. to, without the condition of receiving reward and letting the fear, or is it saying let the fear of heaven motivate you? Oh, can you piece out what the differences between those? I th I'm interpreting as saying don't act, behave, 
work as if you're going to receive a reward, reward, but still let the fear of God be there, which to me is not intrinsically motivated because you're afraid you'll be punished by God, or is it telling you uh, not to be, not to have the fear of God be upon you? I'm not sure how to interpret the end. You know what? Great. Good. I, I'm so happy that that's the case because I think it's hanging. You know, what's not clear in this is the substitution, right? We don't see Antigonos each Soho say, don't be like a servant who's expecting a reward. Rather, be like a servant who's not, who, uh, be like a, don't be like a servant accepting it, but be like a servant who serves without the condition of expecting a reward. Okay, cool, fine. But then how should I be? What's my positive intention? Right, that's my negative, fine, but what's my positive intention? How should I intend myself to be? So fear, is that taking the place of the reward? And if so, what does that fear mean? Or is a fear in a way somewhat similar to the reward, except it's not the reward, it's the punishment. It's the stick, not the carrot. Okay, I want to leave that percolating. I mean, I, I want to hear other ideas about the fear. Vihei morash shemayim aleichem. I let the fear of heaven be upon you. Da -da but again, it's very provocative. That's what's so beautiful about these aphoristic teachings, right? Is it's they're so punchy, right? They're so pungent, they're so powerful, but they also are these deep dark lines, right? But also bright white space around those lines, right? It's so unclear what else it could mean, and that's where we jump in. Right, it's a, what the Midrash calls black letters of Torah and the, and the black fire and white fire, right? White fire is the negative space, which will, and when Messiah comes, be, you know, that will become letters too. Um, okay, great. So I want to do a little bit of something that we don't usually do. Uh, this I'm bringing for my academic training, but uh, this is a very famous academic text. So all texts in Judaism, also the world, have a history. The way we, you know, the book has ruined texts. Because, ah, what's a book? Well, it comes in these cardboard, you know, ends and the paper in the middle. It's, that's the book. But texts, you know, if you go to any, one of the most fascinating religious uh, uh, venues I've ever been to was a traveling exhibit from the Bodleian Library, which is Oxford's library. And they were traveling around with a bunch of Jewish manuscripts, a bunch of Jewish artifacts, and there was a traveling exhibit. And I saw it, I think, at the Jewish Museum in New York. One of the most treasured um, items in their collection is a pinkas, a notebook, like a, like a moleskin notebook, but from the 12th century, of Rambam, Maimonides. And it's open to a page in his Mishnah Torah, Right, in his code of Jewish law. And you see not just, like, you know, his Ksavyad Kaidesh, the, the, the writing of his holy hand, or his holy manuscript. Manuscript, you know what the word manuscript, you've heard the word manuscript before? Like you handed a manuscript to like a publisher? But it literally, manu means hand and script means writing, right? So in Hebrew, the word is Ksavyad, which means handwriting. So you see his manuscript of his code of law, and you think, oh, the decision, right? That's the answer. But he literally, like, has marginalia notes, he crosses words out, he's editing himself, and not just that, but he even changes his mind on one of the halachot, and he, got, he rolls one way in the original and then crosses out and writes the opposite. What it shows you 
is that all texts are thick. They all have history. They all develop and evolve. And that's really when you, like, there's, like, levels of Torah learning. What's interesting is that, like, you won't find a lot of manuscript work in, like, the modern Orthodox world, but you find a lot of it in the Haredi world because they have these incredible collections of, of manuscripts, early versions, early printings, before it was edited and, and, and censored and things like that. You'll see a ton of that kind of work in Haredi uh, contemporary scholarship. It's amazing. So this is one of the most, let's say, well-traveled manuscripts in Jewish learning. It's the Koifman manuscript of the Mishnah. Why is it so famous? Because it is old and complete. You'll usually have manuscript fragments, but you usually don't have them so legibly uh, written and so full. Um, huh? What? Was that an accident? Okay. Cool. So, let's look at the beautiful Koifman manuscript. Can everyone see it? You can read it, right? Doesn't it look a little more like Torah? Looks like, it looks like the Torah. So, what, I mean, I, I am very bad at orthography. I can, I, one, of the, uh, one of my failures as an academic, I could never, like, read the little scribbles. Uh, but this, look how gorgeous it is. You can read it. All right, now I want someone to read it again. Uh, someone who's got Hebrew. I might, be, I might be nominating Lauren. Lauren, will you save us? If, if I don't cough a lot. Okay, this, will, this is, a, you know, Torah is a balm. Torah is the cure. Hello, hi. Well, the, the, you know, the letters are not so clear. Okay, so. Well, okay, it's, it's like a little bit bigger. I got it from a scan. Please forgive me. Okay, so you want me to start like at the first? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a hint. It is a nitignos. Oh, a tignos. Okay, mm -hmm. <clears throat> not fair. It's like cornflakes. <laughs> <clears throat> Try and read it in Hebrew. Ish tovo. Ish socho. Ishma. Ish socho. Oh, ish socho. Kibel. Mishmeon. Mishimon, yeah. Mishimon. Chetaik. Hatzadik. Hatzadik. I don't even see that as a tzadik. Okay. Yeah, the, the one on the bottom is a little bit easier. Huhaya Omer, right? He would say, Al tiyu ka'avadim. Don't be like servants. Okay, this one's a little bit clearer, right? I mean, here's the thing. I, I mean, I actually typed it out, but I just wanted you to see how, like, it's nice. If you see other manuscripts, you'll see how, like, scribbly it is you'll see you'll, like you'll see how lucid and clear this is by contrast so i guess maybe for me i'm like spoiled but um okay so here i just i, I did a i did a transcript of it so antigonus ended up huyao mer huyao mer huyao mer huyao mer Hamisha, you the arrows on there. Hamisham Shim, and Harav Almanat Lekabel Pras. Okay, that's exactly like we saw in the printed Mishnah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Hamishmashim, and Harav Almanat Pras. Okay, pause. How would you translate that line? There were workers. Either be like, it's in the Jossive. It's a Sivui. 
Okay, so there have been there workers? be like. Okay, the the be workers. like workers. Okay, be like workers. Atsivui, Hivanti. Be like workers who work uh, at Harav, mostly um, oh, not, oh, for, for the Rav, the master. Most, okay, mostly not to get a prize. Yeah, good. Okay, so be like servants who serve their master, like their Rav, on condition that they don't get a reward. Now, is that like the printed version of the Mishnah or not? Let's go it's back. A little, it's a little different. It's a little different. The Ella in the printed version is be like servants who serve their master, not on condition that they receive a reward. Right? That just means that they don't yeah. have that condition. But this is, they have a condition. And what's the condition? Not to get a reward. Not to get a reward. And they're doing it um, for shame shemaim. Yes, okay, yeah, and it's the same conclusion. Let the fear of heaven be upon you. But what's the difference between not having a condition of receiving a reward and having the condition of not receiving the reward? That's like starting out from the beginning knowing that you won't get any material gain from what you've been working at. Yeah, how, how else do people take it? It's a pretty, pretty interesting, isn't it? I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> if, if, if serving a chef, yes. But if I were working in a hospital as a pharmacist and they said, you know what, you don't get paid, I'd be out of there. Huh. Yeah, well, I mean, who's the kind of person, right, who would do that? It would be a, a, a person who's truly, truly devoted to a chef who mm -hmm. saw him herself as only a servant as a chef. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? I mean, it's interesting, right? Because it takes the, mo right, the metaphor it's using is one of employment, right? Which per Adrian's terms before, I thought were very apt, employment is based in exchange, right? It's based in, um, it's based in, transaction, right? Um, sorry, that was, that was Lauren's language too. Um, it's, it's transactional. I put in X amount of hours, I do Y amount of labor, and I get Z amount of, uh, of, of capital, right, in return, right? Alienation of labor, da-da-da-da-da. We all know the story. You know, you, you know it, it, there's something heroic about that, right, in terms of what it means to put your preferences aside so that you can make a living and support those who need you. Beautiful thing. But the dream, right, is, oh, I'm going to do something. And, you know, and, and, that's what that, and that's what Marx, right, famously calls alienation of labor, right? That you, you, you spend your time doing something, you put your sweat and blood into something, but you don't own what you've made, right? And you don't own what you use to make it. Right? You, build a, you build a building, but you don't own the building. So you go past it, and on one hand, you feel proud. But on the other hand, you feel ashamed, you feel embarrassed, you feel less than, right, because it's not your building. But imagine what it would be like to go to work, to serve a master, to work for a boss, and not need compensation for it, or rather to forswear compensation for it, right, to give it up, to not even want it. 
what kind of, you know, again, it's a fantasy, right? Because, you know, this is how we're talking about it. It sounds amazing, incredible, incroyable, right? Because you can't believe it. Who would ever do that for a boss or a human boss? But imagine what kind of person it would be that you would have that kind of trust in, devotion to, that you'd give it all up for, right? That's the vision that's being proposed here. And in, in, a, in an ironic way, it's inverting or even, let's say, negating the metaphor it's using. If employment is fundamentally based in exchange, right? To do something and to not, not for the sake of, of what you get back from it, because actually in the terms of the Talmud, schar mitzvah, mitzvah, the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Right? Imagine what kind of relationship you would have to that kind of work. It's not. It's the opposite of alienation. It's devotion. Right? There's nothing different between that separates between what you do and who you are. Because all you want is what you do. And again, it's something really important here. That kind of devotion, right, to God. That there's no compensation needed because you're doing it because you want to. Because you serve. Right? I mean. There's a reason maybe this version of it didn't make it into the printed printed edition. Because this version is, that's another madrega, right? On one hand, Antigonos Soho can say, yeah, listen, don't be like a servant who's just in it to get the paycheck. Be like a servant who's not just in it to get the paycheck. But that doesn't mean you, you still get the paycheck, right? But that's just not why you do it. But here he's saying, no, be like, this, be like the employee who said, I don't need money. I don't want money. I love this so much. Right, that's, I mean, that is, I think, what we would call altruism, right? There is no self-benefit in that kind of model. All right, any just thoughts before we move forward? Now, one of the things I want to track is, even though, again, this version, right, from the Koifman manuscript, Kaufman, Koifman, whatever, manuscript didn't make it into the printed version, the printed edition, I think that altruistic idealism You'll, we'll see the way it gets, still gets smuggled in. And then we're going to see, okay, where are we left with? Is that kind of idealism realistic? Or where are we left with? Right? What, what's an applicable, translatable model that we can, be, uh, that we can actually think about you know, in, our, in this coming week's spiritual work? What does it mean to apply that? Is this any uh, further concluding reflections on this text or on that, the difference between these two versions? You know, I'll tell you, you'll find, um, you know, one of the fun ways also you'll see, like, the difference between versions of text is that when you, when you learn uh, Gemara, and you learn Gemara with Rashi, right, and then sometimes Rashi says, oh, you know, this is my reading of the text, i.e., this is the version of the Talmud I have in front of me, and it's different than the version of the Talmud someone else gave me. And then the Tosafot say, no, 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 this is the version that we have in front of us. It, it, it's a whole world out there of how beautifully, glory, like, radiantly vibrant the history of Jewish literature is. It's so unsettled. It's like quantum physics. It's incredible. Um, okay, so here comes the Gra, the Gaon of Vilna, who has uh, a commentary on the Mishnah. And he, in, you know, he, 
the Grah, you know, besides being uh, a genius, literally, also had an encyclopedic, I mean, also, had an encyclopedic knowledge of all of Jewish literature, knew it all, and a lot of his commentaries are making sure that you know the intertexts, right, the references that the text wants you to be gesturing to. So this one is one of those. He says, Kamosha Kosov ben Indarim, as it's written in Talmudic tractate about vows, it says, Tanya, we have a Baraita that says, Li Ahava, dot, 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 love, etc. Shaloyum Aradam Ekra, a person shouldn't say, I will study, dot, dot, dot. Limod me Ahava, Vesof, dot, dot, dot. Rather, study from love, and then in the end, etc. What? Okay, well, thankfully we have the Talmud, and we can go to the text that he's in, he is uh, referring to. So, it's taught in a bright. Right? Love the Lord your God. Hearken to God's voice. And cleave to God. Right? Cling to God. Right? So, this is language of love. Right? Embrace God. Right? You know, the main, there's two kinds of modalities. We see them in Yom Kippur. Uh, you know, im kevanim, im kavadim. Whether we are like children or we are like servants. Whether we are the ones that you love or we, the ones that you employ. All right? And there's two differences there. So, you know, you can't fire a child. You can fire a, a worker. Right? I guess nowadays you can, like, divorce your parents, but that, I think that idea wasn't there yet. Right? The ties of family, of love, are um, non-abrogable. Um, whereas you are employed, you know, at, you know, you, at work, at will, right? At will employment. You can be let go of. Um, but here what we have is dynamics of love. Love God. Listen to God. But that listening, right, we think of listening as like obey, hearken to. But if listening is tied to love, it's because it's connected by dint of trust. Right? You listen to the ones you love because you trust them. Right? You love them, so you believe them to have your best interests at heart. Because they love you. Right? And cleave to them. Right? And embrace them. Come closer to them. Be as close as you can to them. Shalom yomar adam. A person shouldn't say, Ekra shi I will study Torah. Right? When it says Ekra, it's referring to the Mikra. Right? The, the scripture. I will study Torah, so they will call me a sage. Eshne, I will study Mishnah. Sheikrauni Rabbi, so they'll call me Rabbi. Ashanein, I'll study um, uh, probably Midrash, what they refer to here, um, or I'll, I'll review it. I'll do Chazara. Sheyezakain, so I will be considered an elder. Ve'eshev b'shiva, and I will have a position in the yeshiva. Okay, so what kind, what kind of relation to Torah is the Havamina describing? It's a means to an end. So you're not studying Torah, mamish, for the love of studying Torah, but you're wanting the glory of being thought of the person who studies Torah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for your reputation, right? You want something on the back end. I'm studying Torah. 
I mean, I think that's actually, that's quite right. It's not for the, I mean, I'm using the word content, although I hate that word, but it's not for the interior of Torah, but rather it's the perception of being one who studies Torah, right? It's you're posting about it on the gram, right? You are, it's not what you, your actual substantive studies. It's not even what you gain from it in terms of like wisdom, but rather that you are thought of as wise. Right? It's not that you develop and you grow, but rather you are thought of as an elder. It's, um, you know, philosophers like uh, Husserl or other, you know, existentialists would call this inauthentic, right? It's not your interior experience you are uh, consider you're concerned with, but rather how others perceive you, right? The view from the outside. And um, I think we've all been caught in that trap before. I think like social media makes it very hard to escape that trap, right? Of um, needing to market yourself, doing something so that it gets some kind of reaction from people, right? You know, I don't blame anybody for any, I mean, I, you know, I, I use social media too. I'm not judging any user. Rather, I critique the tools that were being foist upon us because I think it inculcates something that's not good for our self-esteem. It's not good for our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, that our worth is determined by others' reaction, others' response, right? Torah is telling us, don't be like somebody who does something so that you get some kind of perception, some kind of per, uh, reputational reward, but rather do it from love. Do it because you have your own connection with this thing, and it has its own worth that you are invested in. Ella, rather, and here's what we get, we're supposed to do, Limad me ahava, study Torah from love. Vesof hakavod lavo, and in the end, dignity, honor, respect will come. Shene emar, koshrim al atzbotecha, kotvem al luach libecha. Bind them upon your fingers, write them as on the tablet of your heart. Ve'omer drachecha darche noam. And say, its ways are ways of pleasantness, right, are lovely ways. Right? Uh, we know that from, this is the Pasuk that Eitz Chaimhi is from. It's a tree of life for those who hold fast to it. And those who support it are happy. So here, you know, if you were to put this Gemara, right, which the Vilna Gaon is associating with the Mishnah. Now, first of all, what he sees as taking the place of doing it for the sake of the reward is doing it for the sake of love, right? So fear is still left dangling, right? It's not we're doing it for fear, rather you're doing it for love. And then it says at the end, also make sure to have fear. So that's interesting. This maybe you need, you can do it for love, but also don't, don't lose the fear too. But second of all, if you were to associate this Gemara with either of the versions, the printed version, be like servants who don't do it for the sake of the reward, or the Koifman version, do it like servants who do it not for the sake of the reward, which one would you associate it with? Ask it again, please. Would you associate this Gemara in which it says, serve God from love, and but in the end, 
dignity, reward, respect will come. Would you associate that with the printed version, which says that we should be like servants who don't expect a reward? Or the Koifan version, which says we should be like servants who, who give up the reward, who don't want it? It's the first one. It's the first one, yes, because it says, I agree with you. I mean, I guess you can make a case for the other one, so I'm open to that case as well. But that, that's my reading as well, because it says, listen, there's a primary re reason why you do things. But it's okay that at the tail end of it, there's a secondary benefit. Is this not, that's not why you're doing it. You know, and I think that's a really important, let's say, let's call it pragmatic approach to ethics. Right, you know, Immanuel Kant, right, 18th century German philosopher had this idea that moral morality, right, ethics, what you call practical reason, is only possible if you do it from a pure motivation, right? So it means that you can't have any kind of tainted motivation. That's the Koifman version, right? That you're doing it and you're literally just abandoning any notion that you'd get something out of it. You, you don't just abandon it, you, you reject it, you, you deny it. It's pure, mo it's your, your, your intentions are pure. That's what, con you know, the categorical imperative. But I wonder how much actually, how, how much good is prevented because of that kind of moral purism. Right, because if you think, oh, the only way I can do good is if I am a saint, right, if I'm a tzaddik, I am doing it out of pure love, then I wonder, in a way, if we miss the more ambivalent or ambiguous cases in which we could do something good, but we don't go as far as we could because we're skeptical or critical of our intentions. Here, we have like a very, let's say, a moderate middle ground. Do it for the right reasons, but it's okay to feel good about it, right? It's okay that you get something from it. It's just that shouldn't be why you're doing it. Right? Love God, love Torah, learn Torah, and goodness comes from that. That's not bad. It's good that good things produce good things. It would be a shame if that weren't the case. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, like, I, I think about this a lot when I, you know, talk to people in, like, you know, pastoral contexts, that it's good to feel good about doing good, I think. It's just not good to do good so that you feel good. Because um, that then turns whatever you're doing just into a vehicle for yourself. But rather... I think that we need a certain amount of pride, you know, until we become Sadiq one of these days. But, you know, normal people like me, I need to encourage myself, and I need to bolster myself, and I need to further what I'm trying to do. And, you know, feeling proud of myself helps me continue to commit myself to things that are worth doing. So, this is my little intervention to say, you know, this, this, this sheer is about altruism, about intention. Right, about doing things for the right reasons. And this is my little intervention to say, it is not bad to feel good to do good. However, there leaves, it leaves us with a certain horizon of where else we could go with that. And I want to explore that. But before we move on, any reflections, rejections? Uh, yeah, I yes. was thinking that 
Okay, just thinking in terms of the growth of the person in their life. So as a child, mm-hmm. you're probably told, do this, you get a reward, be it a gold star on your exam paper or mm-hmm. whatever. Or often with us, when I was growing up, it was the negative. Like if a kid said, oh, you touched it, books and Shabbat, you didn't evade, the Shem will get you. So, you know, I actually grew up like that. Mm-hmm. So, um but after a while, when you get over that, you learn to do good things for the point of doing good things, not just to avoid punishment or to, or to you know, get a, a reward. I think it's like a training thing in your younger years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very interesting, right? Because I think you're, you're, you're noting something that's missing. Antigono Sichsocho doesn't say, don't be like a servant who obeys his master so that he's not punished. Where are we left with in terms of like, let's say negative reinforcement? You know, what is the meaning of that fear in the end? I wanna leave that hanging because I think we can't forget it. The, the Gra reads this as a teaching about love. Or he brings in this Talmudic text, which is about doing things for their own sake because it's worth doing and you love it, you cherish it, and thus you do it. You believe in it. But what about extrinsic motivations? Okay, we are supposed to move away from reward and things like that. We're not supposed to turn it, you know, the Torah into a spade to dig with, into a, into a, you know, a rake to rake with, into a tool. We're not supposed to reduce Torah to a means to an end. But what about the uh, ways that we're kept on the straight and narrow? Right, he, the Gra reads this as love. Do it for the right reasons because you love it. But what's left hanging is fear. What do we do with the end of this teaching? I want to I wanna, I wanna leave that as a provocation. There's no answer yet. I hope we'll get to some kind of suggestion as we move on. So that's an incentive to stay tuned. Um, okay. So here comes the Rambam. Um, now the Rambam, I put this teaching after because he's developing this theme. Right, and it's clear that the Gemara we just looked at is in the back of his mind. And not just in the back of his mind, he, he literally quotes the same Pasuk. Uh, so he says, the Chachamim Rishonim, the early sages, right, the same ones who would like meditate for an hour before davening, and meditate for an hour after davening, and really pious people. Shema Tomar Hareini Lame Torah Bishvil Ashir. Lest one say, I'm going to learn Torah so I get rich. Right, you know, actually, it's, okay, don't tell this to the board of Beth Lita. Um, you're not supposed to make money for teaching Torah. Please don't tell them that. Um, rather, um, your uh, rabbinic contracts often have like funny language so that like you're making money for some other reason. Um, now, I mean, what I'm technically making money for is like services I'm providing and da da da. We're not breaking halacha, don't worry. But you know, I remember my friend told me way back in the day that like that contracts for uh, Jewish high school was that the, the, the Torah teachers, the contract was for, they were making money so that the students wouldn't become lawyers. Um, so that's what their salary was, was hinged on. <laughs> but anywho, you're not supposed to learn Torah or study Torah so that you get rich from it. Bishvil she'ekra rabbi, or that you don't, you're not supposed to learn so you get called a rabbi. So you're not supposed to get material reward. You're not supposed to get reputational reward for it. Or rather, again, that's not why you're supposed to be doing it. Or literally, so that I get some kind of compensation. In the world to come. So again, 
Rambam pushes back on this condescending, consequentialist version of religion. That the point of it is you, know, you, you, you punch in, you punch out, right? You, you do the mitzvah, so you get, the, you get to go to heaven. It's, not, it's, not, it's never been Judaism. Yes, it's not saying that good things don't come to good people. Yes, there is reward. But there's the ideal is something more than that. And to reduce it to just the consequence makes it all a, a very paltry affair. And as I tell with Lamar, the verse says, Hashem, love God. This isn't, I mean, and I, he really kind of puts his thumb on it. I think that's, and I think that's something I want to kind of emphasize again. Think of love relationships in your life, be it a spouse, you know, a romantic partner, a dear friend, siblings, children, family, chosen family, what have you. Okay, a relationship that is defined by love. I don't think anybody here, I, mean, I think everyone here would find it offensive to see love the way that evolutionary psychologists do. Ah, yes, you find a mating partner so that you can continue your genetic line. Like, how does that at all fit the, 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 the vibrant human experience of what love is? Right? I, like, you have a friendship, so you, have, you build out your social network so that you can, you know, gain advantages in this world, do better in business. Like, ugh! Everyone would find that to be offensive, and it's like literal, you know, it's offending. It's, it's, it's uh, a perversion, right, of what love is. Love is the rejection of an ends-oriented mindset. It's about, love is defined by sacrifice. All right, love is defined by what you're willing to give up for the sake of another. Not what you gain. I mean, and, you, and, the, and the paradox of love is that you gain so much more. But it's only because that's not why you do it. You know, you'd be willing to give up everything. And, you know, think of, like, you know, the, the mother fueled by adrenaline lifting the car above her head to save her child, right? Like, you're willing to give up anything. And paradoxically, you, you gain the world. And, you know, Rambam is usually thought of, like, you know, usually by, like, in the context of, like, modern orthodoxy. Like, he's the rationalist. He's the reasonable one. He's a doctor. Like, a, he's, you know, he's a good Jewish boy. He became a doctor. But they haven't read his philosophy because the climax of the Guide for Perplexed is Ishk in uh, Volume 3, Chapter 51. It's that uh, the, the philosopher, you know, cleaves to God, mystically, of kind of, philosophically, mystically, and, and has an experience of what's called Ishk in Arabic, which is a cognate of the word Cheshek, which means uh, desire, but like love. Eros, even. Right? Rambam is love drunk on God. It's just that his love language is philosophy. Um, everything that you do should be done out of love, he says. That's like a, that, you know, it, now which version of the Mishnah are we in? Koifman or the printed one? Erwin Koifman. Yeah, he doesn't say, listen, do it from love and then later respect will come. He just says, do it from love. 
Everything you do should be out of love. Like, this is the high watermark, right? V'odam nuchachamim, and the sages further said, V'chein, oh, sorry. V'mitzvosav chafetz me'od, v'lo b'schar mitzvosav. Chafetz, right, means desire. Desire the mitzvahs very much. Don't desire their reward. That's quite fun. All right, so again, even though the Koifman version, I mean, you know, I don't know which version of the Mishnah Rambam had. I mean, we should guess go to the manuscripts where we see, you know, his, his commentary. Pardon me. Um, but, you know, this reads like the, the, the altruistic, you know, higher madrega of it. Right, and thus would they say, and this is what the, the, the sages would say, the, uh, you know, the enlightened sages would say to their students, and particularly to the enlightened of their students. Right? This is what they would tell, like, the, you know, their, their uh, advanced class, right? This is what they're telling them. Right? Ah, quoting what? Quoting our Pirkei Avos. No, he doesn't say which version of it. He, he says dot, dot, dot. Don't do it for the sake of reward. Rather, Why serve the master? Because it's fit, it's fitting, it's proper, it's right to serve the master. That is to say, serve from love. I want us to be clear about what this means. I think we all get intuitively, like, yes, it's, you know, bitolayesh, right, or annulling our egos. It's not about what we get from this. It's about, but I want to make it a little less highfalutin and make it a little bit more approachable. You know, because on one hand, I want to say, uh, you know, part of this is like say, okay, there's the ideal, there's the real, you know, there's these principles we have, but how do we actually practice it? But I want to actually give us access to what this can be as not just like what the tzaddikim would do, but even like a normal yid. I want us to try to maybe close your eyes for a second. I just want us to imagine something, someone, right, that you really value cherish and trust, right? You would do something for that person because it's worth it, because they're worth it. I don't think that actually is like beyond the sea. Maybe as a way of living your life, that is like a very high order to achieve. But the ways in which I think every one of us can in some way find like a, a wedge to, to just crack open our lives a little bit and find something in it that we can do just for its own sake. Something devotionally. I think that is actually an achievable action item of sorts. Can we transform our lives bit by bit to find more ways to do something as an act of love. I want to provide a mystical framing for this as well, because, well, you know me well enough by now, I suppose. Uh, this is the uh, Or Ne'erav, which is um, kind of like 
it's by the Ramak, uh, Rebbe Moshe Cordovero, 16th century Kabbalist in Tzfat. He was the master, uh, you know, he was like the top Kabbalist in Tzfat. Um, and he dies, and then Isaac Luria kind of takes his place. Ornet Arav is actually a great text to study um, because it's kind of, I'd call it like his like intro to Kabbalah of sorts. Like it is, it kind of outlines his major theories. It's not as esoteric as some of his other works. Ha ha ha. Um, so he has a he has a commentary on this passage. He he says this. Um, and he frames it in terms of the main, let's say, avodasha belief, right? The worship of the heart, religious service, which we do, which is to pray. He says, "Ki hamit palim heim al There are two kinds of prayers, people who pray. Kinds of praying. Ha'echad al derech avadim. One way of praying, or one kind of archetype of praying, is that of the evad, right? The servant, the employee. Hamishamshim etarav almanat lekabo pras, who serve their master on condition of receiving a reward. And what does that translate to? That they daven, they pray, according to the meaning of the, you know, the basic, simple meaning of the words of the, of the prayer book. So they gain benefit in this world. Right, and these are the people who are asking from God um, to uh, below, right, to help them uh, uh, get what they need. Okay, now, very important point. What is his relationship to the like? How in this teaching? How is the remark regarding this first cot of people? Are they doing the wrong thing? Do you think? Just intuitively. I don't think he's saying they're doing the wrong thing. It's just, I think it's a lower madrega than people who do, than the next group who do it purely out of love. But it's not like the Rashaim, it's just a lower madrega. Okay. That's, I think that's right. And I think that's something very important, right? On one hand, he's saying, listen, this isn't a as far as you could go, but it is a normal thing. And not just that, like when you think of what praying is, it's this usually, right? You're praying for something. But often, you know, if you hinge your prayers to their results, what's called iyun tefillah, right? The rabbis also are like kind of uh, skeptical of that because, you know, we can't, again, reduce service to exchange, to transaction. You know, I've davened for plenty of stuff, and I put it out there, you know, with the best hope. But on the other hand, we can't hinge our faith to getting a specific result. I think we kind of know that intuitively. It's that's a very, you know, if only if only I could just daven more and get exactly what I want, right? Like, you know, it's within a larger thing. Just because we want something, even if we have the best intentions, doesn't mean it always comes through. Rather, there's something higher than that, he says. Oh, no, yesh bunny. Ah, so interestingly, he actually gets rid of the point of the... He doesn't say this. this the only kind of evet is the one who is looking for a reward. That's what it means to be looking for a reward. You are working for somebody. You get the paycheck. 
The next level is children. Now, I don't want to get into like, the Kabbalistic technicalities. So the point of davening to quote-unquote children, you know, these people of a, of a more higher order, their purpose, their entire purpose, is not to bring the flow down below, but rather to go up above and to fix something in God, you know, in, in the heavens. Okay, then, okay, now it's getting into a little bit of a complicated thing. But I'll just stay there. Now, the other way of davening, other archetype of davening, is to effect something beyond yourself, right, in the very fabric of the cosmos itself. And I find that very interesting. Because, let's say, even if you're not like some hippy-dippy cobblest, I still think this is like a meaningful text, or a, a, a usable text, in the sense that even though he calls them children, they're still laborers. We're going to talk about labor more. We're going to talk about malacha, you know, labor as, as something religious, but they're still laborers. They're still avadim in a sense. How? Because instead of being paycheck-oriented, they're service-oriented. How? Because what they're davening for is not to get anything, but to give something. That's what they're davening for. They're davening to effect healing in the, in the spirit, to bring the shechina, you know, to... to Repair the alienation between Shechina and Kuchabrichu, right, between Malchut and Tiferet, to bring unity to the Godhead, to bring harmony to the universe. So even though he uses the term of Banim, right, Im Kavadim, Im Kavanim, whether like servants, whether like children, right, that's that classic dyad right there. But what's the highest order of Avoda Shebelev, the labor of the heart, prayer? It's not labor to get something. It's labor to give something. It's seeing yourself as being in the position to contribute rather than to, uh, rather than to receive. Now, you know, again, the result of bringing healing to Shechina and, and Tiferet is that the flow of blessing will, you know, be abundant, will flow down to this universe, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it, I mean, the way I think that this is like meaningful beyond, you know, if you relate to Kabbalistic language or Kabbalistic symbol, symbolism, is I think it, it says something about how you regard yourself in your service. Do you hinge it on what the results of it are for you, or do you hinge it on how you integrate yourself into something beyond yourself? A way to contribute towards a project that reaches beyond you. To see yourself within the greater chain of being, within the system of life. To be a node in something, a fabric that's, that, that extends beyond. Okay. 
So that gives us, I think, another way to think about what it means to be a servant who moves away from this reward mindset, right? It's not, you know, maybe it's not the heroism of like rejecting the reward, but rather it's actually just about letting go of that, letting it pass, because in a way it's like missing the point. The point isn't what I get. The point is that I'm in a position of privilege to be able to do what I'm doing to contribute the way I'm contributing, to do something worthy and to contribute something needed. And that's ennobling in that, in that way. You know, the kavod comes, not because you're in it for the respect, but rather because you're doing something that is ennobling. Um, I'm gonna skip this from the Ketur Shemto. Okay. So here is um, a very famous text of Musser um, from Moshe, uh, from uh, Lutzato. It's called Mesila Isharim. Now he himself was a mystic, but this book was kind of his kind of mainstream book. It's a book about how to work on different aspects of yourself. It's it's kind of it's a classic in in the Musser Yeshiva world. And he, you know, this is a very uh, important theme that we're dealing with in terms of how what your intentions are in your uh, in your work in your holy work. He says, "Yeshmin acher shel shalolishma." So lolishma is if you do something for extrinsic motivation, not for its own sake. He says there's another kind of somebody who does something not for its own sake. Shehu avoda almenat lekabel pras. Right. So doing something for extrinsic motivation might be to do a mitzvah or whatever. So that you get some kind of reward, some kind of compensation. The Allah Amru. And on that per upon that person it said, regarding that person, it said, La Olami Asokadam Bitorah of Mitzvot Afilu Shalolishma. Ah, it's a therapeutic reading of that. You thought maybe he's gonna say, throw that guy out. Ah, you're doing something for reward. What kind of schnook are you? You're being so crass. He says, no. He sees it as a continuum. He quotes the Talmud, there's a very famous teaching from Psachim. 50b it says always be a person should always do torah and mitzvahs even if ah even if you do it not for its own sake extrinsically even if you do it so that you're called a rabbi even if you do it so that you get a reward even if you do it so that you are regarded as a sage why? This is a famous teaching. I imagine many of us have heard it before. Because from doing something extrinsically for the sake of an, for the sake of what you get from it, eventually you will move to do it for its own sake. So what kind of model is this that the Misiwasi Sharim is reading into the Mishnah? into Antigonos Soho. Kind of similar to the way that the Rabak was looking at the two kinds of praying people. He's saying, okay, it's not ideal to do something for the sake of a reward, but it is understandable. And I think this is something very interesting pedagogically. And you risk alienating people who need something at that moment. Right? Imagine somebody who 
find something in Torah that they need. And in a way, their commitment to Torah is hinged on them get they're getting something that they need. I mean, don't we all get something from Torah? Don't we all get something from being Jewish? The sweetness of the kugel. A kiddish. What it means to be part of a community. Purpose and meaning. It's human to do something because you need to. This is what I was gesturing at before with my very abstruse comments about Kant. It's normal to do something because you need to, because we're human beings and we have needs. Why shouldn't Torah also, at least sometimes, at least maybe in an earlier stage, be part of that calculus of human need? Uh, it's not abnormal. It's not rejection deserving to do commit yourself to Torah. Not only that, but maybe those commitment, th those rewards exist to sweeten the pot until when? Because it's not, he's saying, okay, fine, do it for the sake of reward, and you know what? That's great, that's it forever. Rather, I think he sees it pedagogically, that you do it for the sake of the reward in the beginning, so that in a way you can ease yourself, wean yourself off of it, right? Until you're able to do it for its own sake. You're able to gain experience with it, maybe see the ways in which the reward isn't always there, or maybe to see it as hinged on that reward, you, you understand that, you grow to understand that you're reducing what else Torah could be if it is the reward delivery mechanism. That you're able to develop, in a way, like a more mature relationship with something as something beyond just what you get from it. And then eventually you can let go of that. So for the Gemara, quoted by, by Lutzato, the Ramchal, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, it's not one against the other. It's rather that first you do, so, it's normal that somebody's going to do something for the sake of the reward. And then as they develop a connection and an attachment and a relationship with Torah, a real one, a thick one, a substantive one, eventually they'll be able to recognize the way in which that limits what Torah can be and to start to slough that off and to develop something more um, intrinsic. And he, and he puts it this way, Right, somebody who stays in that first stage, that immature stage, that need-based stage, Again, it's not that they're doing something bad, but rather they're, I mean, I think I use that language of limit on purpose. They haven't reached the fullness of what it could be. Because it reaches something more broad, more vibrant, more full. When you're able to see it on its own terms. You know, when you meet somebody, right? Or like if you're dating, you know, First, you're looking for what you want. You know, people have like a checklist or whatever or something. But in a way, like, you know, like that in that way, then you're like reducing or translating somebody just into an extension of you. Okay, do they meet this thing that I want, this thing that I need, yes or no? And while, of course, it's normal and natural to have needs, fine. But think, but you grow to eventually, as you develop a relationship with a human being, Right? That's not that they're a, a need delivery mechanism, but rather they're another human being, a conscious, 
intentional human being who is intentionally wanting to help you because they care about you and vice versa for you right there do you get the things you need because you've met somebody who's in it too who wants to help you who wants to take care of you that's a very different relationship because then you can see that they are beyond just what you need and you can contextualize what you need within that such that let's say when things break down when work is really hard, when somebody's emotional reserves are drained and they're not able to be there for you. You're able to contextualize that within like, oh, this is another human being with their own needs, their own, <laughs> their own life, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the thing I'm, 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 I'm committed to. This person, this relationship, this project, this production. It's lovely that somebody is here in the world, that person's friends are here in the world, family is here in the world, who want my well-being and who prioritize my well-being. That's great. But you know what? Everyone who's doing that also deserves well-being, and I'm part of that for them, too. And you see that Torah is not just something that gives you something. Torah is something that asks something from you that you can give to Torah as well. So we see in a way, even, even that mystical model from, from the Orna Arav, from the Ramak, fits here too. That it's not just about what you get, it's, I don't mean to be too glib here, but it's about being able to see yourself, and this is really a change in self-perception. Are you always looking, you know, this kind of deficit mentality, paucity, right? I need to fill the holes. That's how we think of Shlemut, right? I'm complete when I'm able to fill all my holes. No, real wholeness comes from, real completion, real fullness comes from realizing that within you is something that the world needs and that by you giving of it, you're not left wanting, but actually you're fuller than you were before. Yes, energy is finite. We only have so much time in the world, but love is not finite. Hmm. Um, I want to conclude with this uh, comment from the Tosfis Yantiv. Uh, two commentaries tend to get printed in the printed edition of the Mishnah. There's the Ovadia Mi Bartanura, that the, uh, the, the sprite wine is named after. Um, that's kind of like the Rashi of the Mishnah of sorts. He's a Renaissance commentator from, from Italy, from Bartnor. And there's the Tosfus Yantiv. Um, Tosfus Yantiv is a very, like Tosfus, it's a much longer, more robust commentary. Bartnor is kind of like the Rashi of the Mishnah. He's like very spare. But in the Tosfus Yantiv, you get into some like really meaty stuff. And I, and I found something beautiful when I was preparing this year. He says, and you know, and, and I found this really uh, gorgeous comment because, you know, we, we've gone through this whole thing of like, okay, you know, like the Gra is saying it's about love. You know, the Ram I'm saying it's about love. Don't be like a servant who serves a master for the sake of reward. Rather be like a servant who rejects the reward or who lets go of the reward. Serve God out of love. Here he comes with a really, I think, important com uh, counterpoint to that that brings us back, I think, into, again, the practical, pragmatic, 
real world. What is it like not just to say, oh, isn't that a nice idea, but rather, how can we start from a, let's say, from an inclusive position? So it's not just something that we aspire to, but then, you know, we let fly away like a float away like a balloon. But rather, it's a practice on the path that we're walking that we can try to integrate into our lives. That it's not either this or that. It's not either altruism or extrinsic, you know, schar mindset. But rather that it's, we're always vacillating between the two. And the path that we're walking between them hopefully will lead, trend more towards one direction than the other. But you're always there. He says, Piresh Harav. I think here actually means, um, I think he means the Rambam. And when you see Harav in commentaries, usually they mean the Rambam. No, don't do it for the sake of schar, do it for love, only for love, pure altruism. Klemar, that is to say, he's here, cautioning us that our, our service of God should be done from, only for the sake of love. Because that's the essence of service. Of, of, of serving God is love. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Aval. Lo shehu rachman alitzlan she'avodash al menat pras hi asura. But God forbid you should think that doing something for the sake of a reward is forbidden. So he's saying, yes, it's, it is absolutely true to say the essence of true worship, true service of God is love. But that cannot then, the aspirational ideal can't then trick you or convince you that anything less than that ideal is unacceptable. That is absolutely wrong, he says. The real exists in concert with the ideal. It's not one versus the other. Shemikol makom, even so, oveid Hashemhu. Even somebody who does something for extrinsic motivation, for the sake of a reward, they are, and this is still a great point, because they're avadim too. They're still an Evet Hashem. Right? Go back to the Mishnah. Don't be like servants who do it on Almanat Lakabo Pras. Fine, don't be like that. But if you are like that, you're still an Evet Hashem. You're still an Evet. Even though you know, the Hasidic dyad of like, you're either an Eved or you're a Bane, you're either an employee, a servant, or you're the highest order of a child of God. A servant can be let go of, a child is forever, fine. But even if you do something because you're clocking in, clocking out, doing it for the paycheck, you're serving God as the sandwich artist of Halacha, even so, You've been kept on the, the, the roll call. You're still on staff. You're still in the, uh, the manifest. I don't know. I don't have a real job. Whatever you call it. You're still, HR still knows who you are. You are still an employee. You are still working for God, even if you're doing it not for the ideal reasons. It's understandable that you're doing it that way. Is it the ideal? No. But it is acceptable. You are acceptable. I don't mean to say like, 
subpar. You are accepted. God accepts you. God understands that you can't always bring yourself to do it when you, you know, by sacrificing your ego. God recognizes sometimes you need to include what you need. You're not always able to do things for the ideal altruistic reason. You're still an Eved Hashem. And for that reason, the Torah did not uh, refuse to mention at times rewards and punishment. Right? We see rewards and punishment in the Torah. Now, is it common? No. But with certain mitzvot, respecting your parents, the reward of that is you'll have long life. Uh, shooing away a mother bird when you take the eggs, the reward of that also long life. Now, of course, that then spins the famous teaching about, you know, the guy who goes up to do that because his father told him to and then falls and dies. And, okay. As we said before, the rewards aren't always, you know, they're not always obvious. Ella she'imya avod, um... So if you serve God for hope of a reward or because you want to avoid punishment, fine, you are not regarded as, as, as well as somebody who only serves God for intrinsic motivation, out of love. Because there's no, there's nothing, uh, there's no kind of chink in the, in the armor of, of, one, of that person's worship. There's no pnia. There's no like. They're not looking anywhere else. There's no point of of um, you know the the edifice has integrity to it. Fine, you're not doing it ideally, but doing serving God because you get something from it is still serving God. It's a therapeutic reading. We can't let our idealisms define the real. Rather, we are within real, the real, you know, the reality of our lives, the demands of our lives, the difficulties of our lives. And it is normal to need something. It is normal to look to Torah, to look to God for what we need. And it's from that, mitosha lolishma balishma, it's from that normality, that real, that we can still start to edge ourselves forward, to crack ourselves open, to take the risk, to dare, to do it out of love. We can see love not as an all or nothing demand, but rather love as a practice that we can include within our lives, to try to do something to try to look for ways to be devoted, what to be devoted to, to whom whom to serve. Ratsahatana Lahazhirenu, the Tana, the Mishnah Rabbi, Antigonos Ich Soho, wanted to caution us. To try to be, strive to be. Someone who serves God out of love. 
אבל לא שיוציא העובד לתקוות שכר מכלל העובדים. But anyone who serves God for, the, for, for a reward is still a, still a servant, still serving God, still involved in a worthy project, still doing something good. I find it a very, I find it a very nuanced, a very nuanced perspective from the Tos Vizyantiv that I think is a, is a good place to end on. That, you know, we can often see learning Torah or the messages we get from Torah as being something that encourages some other kind of life. But I think the genius of Pirkei Avot, of real Torah, when we really learn it, is that it is a deeply realistic body of literature that really understands what real life is like, what it's like to be a real person, a regular person, and what regular real people need, that we have needs, that it's normal to need, and it's normal to, uh, to include God and our relationship with God in terms of what it means to be real. Because if it's not, in a way, we're kind of stunted. If we only have a relationship with God when we can transcend ourselves, then I think that's going to leave our opportunities to have that relationship far more limited. But if we start from the real, we start from within, we start from what it really means to be ourselves, to be in our lives, and then to see where we could go from there, how to include God within that, and how God leads us where else God can leave us, lead us, where else Torah can lead us. I think the pathways in terms of what it can look like and where it can go become much wider, much broader, and much more vibrant. So I think from, from Antigonus Yishsocha we have not a demand, but an encouragement and a challenge. Can we serve God and take upon ourselves the task of what it means to look for the for the ways in which we can devote ourselves and commit ourselves further to recognize there's something worth loving and that and what that kind of love can look like in our lives something to think about especially in the week of glory of hode thank you everyone for sticking with this uh class and um and just a couple announcements as we conclude uh we're having our Lagba Omer Bonfire in the backyard of Bethlehem this Wednesday evening at, eight, at Jewish 8 p.m. We'll start with some davening, with some schmoozing, we'll get the fire going, and then when the sun goes down, we'll, uh, we'll have a really beautiful time singing. There'll be uh, hot dogs, veggie dogs, beer, soda, and stories. It's going to be Torah. It's going to be lovely. Uh, and uh, I hope to also see you at Shul this coming Shabbos, uh, our uh, dear member Joe will be sponsoring Kiddush for his father's yard site, so it'd be great to see you, especially if you haven't been there in a while. Um, have a great rest of your week, and uh, hope to see you real soon.